This is The Politics Lab, a podcast that puts politics under a microscope. On this week's episode, Bill and Phil reflect on the state of the 2024 presidential race exactly one year out from Election Day, including looking at what a second Trump presidency might entail. Then we examine the intersection of religion and politics in the Republican Party and close with a discussion of the most recent Supreme Court case on whether taking guns away from domestic abusers is unconstitutional. Now let's go to the lab. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Politics Lab. My name is Bill Muck, and I'm a professor of political science at North Central College. And I'm joined by my colleague and best friend, Dr. Phil Barker, who's a professor of political science at Keene State College. Hey, Phil. Hey, Bill. How are you? I am doing doing just fine. It's a little, you know, fall day out. Uh, the sun goes down at 2.30 in the afternoon. You know, these these are the things that just make you look forward to an upper Midwest winter. <laughs> I, oh, I know it always happens every year, but uh, like here we're, we're both so far north, but also so yeah. far east that, yeah, it's like, yes. you know, by 4.30, the sun is down and I, I, I know it's coming and yet I'm never prepared every year. <laughs> And, and the, there's the ongoing conversation about whether we're going to fix this and stay on daylight savings time. And it seems to be everybody's in agreement. And then it happens once again. And uh, the, it felt like there was momentum last year to do something. And now there's not. And uh, I know they talk. I, apparently, the counter argument for not uh, change or changing, I should say, is that your syncadium rhythms or something about that gets all screwed up. Your rods and cones aren't firing correctly. I think <laughs> I think that's the official scientific explanation. So apparently that argument won out over like we don't want the sun to go down early. I mean, it feels like humanity has been around a lot longer than daylight savings time and we we made yes. it work. So I, it, it feels like we could we could adapt. But uh <laughs> I, it's I think it's the so. double whammy, too, with like it's not just that it's getting short. The, the days are getting short. It's also like today's our first like real cold snap. Like it was a lovely yeah. day, but it's been and it, we're supposed to get a little bit of like snow and ice tonight. And I don't know, the like darkness at 430 combined with bitter cold is just it's it's a lot to to, <laughs> to handle. It is. <laughs> yes, it is. Well, so, OK, we didn't tape last week because you had a big visitor. Yeah. Uh, why don't you tell our listeners what was going on and who you got a chance to meet and uh, what the experience was like? Yeah. So Keene State had a, for a, one of our annual lectures, we we uh, brought in uh, Daniel Ziblatt, who's uh, we've talked about, you know, uh, Levitsky and, and Ziblatt on, on here a lot. I I always pronounced his name Ziblatt, but apparently it is Ziblatt. And so um, it's a minor difference. But uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he came to campus and did a, a, a lecture a talk on his new book, which just came out, The Tyranny of the Minority. And it was um, fantastic. I mean, he he does lots of, you know, outward facing, you know, public uh, speaking stuff. He's been on, you know, frontline a lot. He's on the news all the time. And yeah, so he's a great speaker. And, and it's just a really compelling argument. And I mean, his whole his it is his whole argument is building off of how democracies die, which is about, you know, populism and, and, and demagogues and the breakdown of democracy and, and whatnot. But, um, the new book looks specifically at the United States in this comparative perspective. We talked a little bit about it a few weeks ago, but the, the idea that, um, our institutions have allowed essentially a, a political, a partisan minority to maintain control. And that is, you know, when you really think about it at, at its heart and an anti-democratic thing, right? Yes. So all these other systems around the world have evolved to sort of more effectively represent where government more effectively represents the people. And we haven't, we've like dug in on these yeah. things and, and he makes a really compelling argument that that is, 
um, contributing to the erosion of democracy in the United States. But he makes essentially an argument that it is also part of what radicalizes the Republican Party because the Republican Party is not forced to moderate to pick up voters anymore. They don't they're not punished. Um, and so this like is sort of increasingly small chunk of people who are sort of uh, holding on to power are able to use the institutions to do that. It, it was it was great. He 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 is super nice, super friendly, you know, humble. It was, it was a, it was a really interesting lecture and it was really great to get to meet him and, and talk with him. You get sort of excited is he's like a political science superstar, yeah. you know, and sure. so it's like in the, in the world of political science, it's a really big deal, but it was, it was fun having him on campus. Now he is, as you noted, I mean, he is a political scientist who is data driven. He is an empirical scholar, um, but his conclusions uh, can be seen as partisan, right? I mean, yeah. so he has been criticized for being critical, he and his, his colleague, for being critical of the Republican Party and the anti-small-D uh, Democratic nature of the Republican Party today. Where, wh how were his ideas received? I mean, were people, did people perceive him as partisan or did they sort of realize that this is a an academic uh, trying to stay outside of the, the punditry that we often sometimes hear? You know, he took a lot of questions at the end, and the questions were almost all supportive. Um, yeah. Keene is a is a fairly you know progressive liberal corner of New Hampshire, and so we had lots of community members and college students there. And most of the questions were about like, well, you know, what what do we do about this? Yes, um, and, and right. it, so it wasn't pushing back. But I did, you know, in talking to people afterwards, there were, I guess, a handful of students who sort of got up and and sort of stormed out in a huff. Um, it was it was standing yeah. room only. I mean, the room was packed, which was great. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's if, if you are, I have been navigating this now, as I talked about this in, we've been talking about democratic breakdown and populism in my comparative politics class. And it's a hard thing to navigate. I try yes. to explain to my students that this is a political science critique and I'm, I'm being critical of Trump, but it, it's not that I'm critical of his policies, although I yeah. often am. This yeah. is a, crit a critique of, of his approach to democracy, right? Like if, if you're unwilling to win, to lose an election, like it, that's, that is, you know, I, we, we go through in class what, what is uh, required for a country to be democratic and, you know, uh, regular elections and, and, you know, willingness to, to turn over power are at the heart of those. And, and if you're going to, yeah. you know, oppose those, then, then that is, you know, that's, you can't have that and still call it a democracy. And so it's, it's a difficult yeah. line to walk in this really partisan world we live in, but I, it's also a really important line to walk. Ziblatt doesn't, I mean, he doesn't pull any punches. He's very, you know, explicit about yeah. this. The Republican party is an authoritarian, uh, you know, yes. party at this point. So and um, I think yeah. that's I think you and I have transitioned to being more comfortable doing that, because I think if you're going to be a good political scientist, you can't do a both sides sort of perspective. Right. You have to let history and data drive your assessment of what's happening in the U.S. political system. And I think if you do that, uh, you're going to see these troubling elements within both Trump and the Republican Party. Uh, but it, but it means that you oftentimes are labeled as being a partisan. It's something yeah. something I sort of grapple with as well, and both in the classroom, media stuff like that too, where you're you're trying to be honest with people about how you know what history and what what the data teaches us. But but sometimes people can't see outside of the partisan lens. Yeah, yep, it's tough.
So, all right, well, before we jump into our first topic, you want to remind everybody how they can stay connected with us. Yeah, so you can find us on uh, uh, at the, thepoliticslab.com, and, and we have all of our old episodes there. We have, you know, basic information about us. We have links to all of our social media. And then, of course, on every episode's page, if you click on it, you have uh, we have articles that are relevant to the topics we talked about. So, again, as usual, this week we've got five or six articles related to um, polling, reporting on a second Trump term, um, reporting on Mike Johnson and religion and all sorts of other stuff. So if you're, if you like the stuff or you're intrigued by the stuff we talk about, you can always find more reading and from reading, uh, at the, the politics lab.com. All righty. Well, let's dive in, Phil. All right, Bill. So yesterday was election day. Um, it may not have felt like it depending on where you lived, but it was election day. And while it did have some significant outcomes like Ohio's referenda on abortion and marijuana, it also means that we're exactly a year away from the 2024 presidential election. It feels like we just went through all of this and here we are. It's, it's kind of crazy. So, Well, we uh, had an insurrection. That sort of extended a little bit. That's true. That's true. Uh, and there is new polling from the New York Times that has Donald Trump leading Joe Biden in five key battleground states, Nevada, Georgia, Arizona, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, all five of which Biden won in 2020. And in some of these states, the leads aren't small. In in Nevada, or I guess it's is Nevada how it's supposed to be, how, how people so. from there pronounce it? I think I, so, I'm, yeah. I'm a Southern boy. So in, in Nevada, <laughs> Trump is up <laughs> by 11 points. I mean, that's really wow. kind of insane. So it's not just that he's leading uh, in, in these polling. He, he leads on key issues. So when you ask people um, about who you uh, support or who you think is, uh, will do a better job on certain issues, Trump leads on questions about the economy on immigration, on national security, um, and Biden's support amongst some of his kind of core uh, constituencies, young voters, minorities, um, is much weaker than it was four years ago. So uh, we're, it, it, it's sort of remarkable to sit here and watch Trump testifying in court and facing all of these charges and, and then leading in, in these polls. Um, and, and the implications of a potential second Trump term are also increasingly clear. The, the Washington Post reported recently that Trump advisors have begun working on plans for a second term and that Trump is planning to weaponize the Justice Department to target his critics, including many members of his former administration. At a campaign stop in New Hampshire, and in reference to his 91 indictments, Trump recently said, quote, this is third world country stuff, arrest your opponent. And that means I can do it too. That is, un that is uh, unbelievable. Wow. So Trump is also reportedly considering using the Insurrection Act to put down protests that might arise in response to his inauguration. So Bill, this is all, you know, from a, from a political science perspective, this is all bad news for democracy. It's a little <laughs> shocking, um, but uh, this is a good time for us to talk about. How worried should we be about a second Trump term? I think we should be worried, right? I, mean, I still we, let's we can dive in the data in just a second. So maybe we can talk about the data and then we can get to this, you know, if Trump is elected, uh, you know, what his policies will be. I, I think we should be worried uh, because we shouldn't be in this position. And so what you've seen, I mean, that polling is is pretty stunning. Now, the caveat to that is we're a year out 
Uh, Biden is president and Trump is is on the outside. Right. So those are always elements where the, the, the existing president is going to be more criticized. Once you get into the, the real campaign, you have a better sense of both of the individuals. And I would expect those numbers to to flatten out a little bit. Uh, but you're seeing a lot of panic among Democrats. Right. So uh, David Axelrod, uh, you know, longtime advisor to the Obama administration, was, was sort of panicking, suggesting that maybe it's time for Biden to step out. You've got other Democrats saying that it's about messaging and you need to do more and and all of this. And and I, I get that, right? And I think if you're the Biden campaign, you need to be proactive about confronting the reality of this this election season and what's going on. But I think if we I, I think we shouldn't focus so much on Biden, right? Biden isn't the problem. Yeah. The problem is the American voter, right? I think I, I find myself just unable to comprehend individuals who are saying in a matchup of these two that the guy who's got, what, 91 uh, indictments, who's been impeached twice, uh, carried out an insurrection, um, you know, has been found guilty of sexual assault. Like that guy, I think, could manage the economy better. Right. I, I think it's a reflection of the failure of civic discourse in the country, uh, being able to to have an honest assessment of, of candidates. Right. I mean, I I, I really really do think this is an indictment of the American political system and the American voter, right? This this should not be close. Biden is not brilliant. He's not great. Yes, he is old, but he, you know, there's just there should be no comparison uh, between these two candidates. Trump should have been discounted and kicked out of the polit- political system long time ago. And the fact that that this is still a, seen as a close election is just it's startling to me. And it makes me think that his election is is more possible than it should be. Right. I, I mean, I still think the numbers are going to be against Trump. Battleground states are ultimately going to, I think, go towards Biden. I think I think all of those things are leading towards a Biden victory. But this polling suggests that, you know, it's 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 going to be close and it shouldn't be close. So, yeah. uh, Phil, I my hot take is the American voter are a bunch of nincompoops and I'm just disappointed in them. Yes, I know. I think you're right. I think you're 100 percent. This is um, uh, it, it's stunning to be a year out and to see these numbers. And it is uh, it, it's an indictment of American democracy. I mean, it, it is yeah. where we like the, that we are in this state that, uh, you know, I, I don't know that that we're even there's even a possibility of Donald Trump being reelected after what he did in the last, uh, you know, the last during his first term and, you know, has been sort of explicit from the beginning with his sort of, uh, you know, anti-democratic, like, you know, refusal to accept uh, a loss, all of that. It's not surprising to me that, you know, 20% of Americans are still excited by that. What's, what's, what's shocking to me is what percentage of Americans who aren't sort of in the grip of Donald Trump are willing to say, yeah, but Joe Biden's old. And so I'm going to go with, with, you know, with Donald Trump. I mean, this is the whole idea of what, what, you know, uh, Zablat and and Levitsky talk about the whole semi-loyal Democrats. Right. And and he talks about that. They talk about that for politicians, but I think it's to some extent, it's the American voter too. It's this idea of like, at some point, are you willing to put um, democracy over your party affiliations or your like, uh, you know, individual grudges over policy issues? Yes. So I, I'm upset about Biden on whatever issue. Um, I mean, I think about that, like there's lots of things to be critical of Joe Biden about. I understand, like I see people, you know, debating um, Israel-Palestine right now and, and being upset about Joe Biden's handling of that. And I, I totally understand that. But 
to say, I don't like the way Joe Biden's handled that. And so I'm going to give the keys to Donald Trump is, is just, it, it's crazy. Right. I mean, but, um, I, I, mean, right. I think, I think that's also, you were saying it's a failure of civic discourse and, and it is, it's also a representative of the success of like 30 years of the Republican messaging, the yeah. Fox news messaging. It's like, we're going to play up essentially, you know, fear and hate and all these other things. And, and that's going to drive people voting at the poll because it's less about democracy and more about like punishment and retribution and victory and all these other things. And which is not what, I mean, again, it's just, it's, it's so far from what the principles of democracy are, are supposed to be. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking to watch. It is. And that's such the last point you make is so important because what Trump has been effective at and what the Republican Party and Fox News and OAN, all of them, is, is been shifting the attention from Trump and saying, yes, Trump is far from perfect, but it's Biden, right? It's the demonization of the other. And so you hear this often in Republican circles now, like, oh, of course, you know, I'm not a huge fan of Trump, but boy, Biden is so, so terrible, right? And that's, that is the narrative that has taken on, the demonization of the other. So if you're guy, you're unwilling to, there's a sort of cognitive dissonance with the ability to assess your own candidate. And, and again, to make a, a reasonable comparison. And I think it's, it's not just Republicans. Also, there's, you know, some Democrats. One of the things in the polling that sort of stunned me uh, was that, let's see, here it is. Uh, voters under 30 said that they trusted Trump on the economy more than they trusted Biden by a margin of 28 yeah. points. Like that is really, really stunning. Uh, and I get I get that, like, you know, Biden is the current president and it feels like the economy isn't doing great. But that the data suggests something else. Right. I saw something this morning that was looking at like the top seven uh, OECD countries. And the United States has the strongest yeah. uh, growth rate compared to some of those other countries and is the best in terms of inflation. So Biden's story is incredibly strong. He's got foreign policy successes, economic successes, unemployments. But none of those things matter. I, I, I Again, this. This polling, I think, sort of rattled me in terms of yeah. thinking about where the where the American public is. And again, maybe maybe I shouldn't let polling rattle me a year out. Well, I, so I think uh, on one hand, I think I, I think yes, and I think we should come back around to that about why. I, I, so the, when I think about like, should we be worried about the Trump presidency? I think we should be very worried about what a second yeah. Trump presidency looks like, and we should be because of that, really concerned about the fact that he might have a chance. But yeah. I still think for the most part, we don't need, like, I, I don't want to say we don't need to worry, but I, I'm, I am not as alarmed by this polling as, as others for a number of reasons. But yeah, I mean, to go back to what you were saying, it, it really is like, you're right, the facts point one way. And it's not just like, you know, a handful of facts. It's yeah. for 40 years, Democratic presidents have like better, like the economy has performed better than under Republican presidents, whether that's Trump or Bush or Reagan. And when you're comparing it to Clinton and Obama. And so, I mean, it's like this long history. But our brains are so warped by all yeah. these other things that like facts don't matter anymore to, to voters. And so, um, I, that's, I, you know, to, to tie it back to, to the talk that, that Daniel uh, Ziblatt gave, you know, he talks about like one, one of the things that's remarkable about the United States and, and to watch the Republican party sort of turn from democratic values. 
he talks about like, there are a couple of things that we know in political science and, and it is that wealthy countries, democracy doesn't break down in wealthy countries, like over a certain level of, of, you know, economic activity, there is no history of a democracy ever breaking down. And we're well beyond that. Like we are wealthy. And, and the other part is that, um, established democracies don't break yeah. down. And, and this is, you know, where he says, even it, you know, he was like, even if you want to throw away the first 150 years and say America wasn't truly democratic and still until the civil rights movement, 50 year old democracies don't break down. And so it's remarkable to watch this happening in the United States, but he talks about the, the, the way the, the places that it does, where you see like well-established parties abandon democracy countries that had accepted the terms of democracy walk away from it are places where you have a group or a party that is like in, in times of like great economic and social change, when you have like a dominant group that is like losing its power. And that is what we yeah. see happening, right? right? It is, this is, you know, ties into all the stuff we've talked about, about, you know, white nationalism and all of that. And so I think that's where, we can talk about economics and the numbers and the facts for Biden, but I think for a whole lot of voters, that's not actually what matters. It's this fear of losing their position in society. Yeah. And so it's, it's so much like, I don't know, there's so much more, um, I don't, it, it's more emotional than, than that for so many voters, I think. Well, and that's, and that's what's interesting about that is that that enables Trump to be so open. And maybe we can transition to what a second Trump would look like. He's not hiding what he is going to do. I mean, he's basically coming out and saying, I'm going to arrest my opponents yep. and I'm going to engage in sort of openly authoritarian tactics. I'm going to centralize power in the presidency to it's, it's no longer about a divided government, right? It's about getting everybody on board where every decision comes through the Trump white house. I mean, this is, these are sort of blatant authoritarian tactics that you do. You go after not only your your opponents, but also your critics on the Republican side. He's not hiding this. And, and while Trump has often talked this way, what's, what's different, I think, about this most recent news story is that he's putting people in place to begin planning for this, right? Yeah. So it's not just Trump at a rally hollering these things. He's bringing individuals in saying, let's begin plans to implement this if we are given a second term. Um, and, and again, that's that's that, that, talking about on the first day, uh, putting the Insurrection Act in to say we're going to put down any type of protest. We're going to you know go lock people up. I mean, even if even if that's not he's not able to do that, speaking about that should be a deal breaker. Right. It should be that people say, like, no, you can't do that. But it has no effect. That story came out. It didn't even really generate much conversation. I felt like yeah. that's part of the reason I thought you and I should talk about it, is like we should make our listeners aware that Trump has a plan for arresting opponents and critics and, you know, engaging in, in broadly authoritarian behavior. And he's writing it all down. Yeah. If you if you haven't heard this or seen this, I've, I've linked it. There's a. I think it's a Washington Post article that's reported in depth on this, um, you know, with using sources close to Trump. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it is totally worth reading. But, yes, it is it is all the all the norms of democratic governance are out the window. Right. It is it is a, a personal retribution to her. He's going to weaponize power to punish people who 
again, I mean, this is like when you look at, when you look at like democratic breakdown, like, uh, you know, um, using targeting your, your opponents with like criminal charges, like criminalizing opposition is like the definition of, of authoritarianism, like of the breakdown of democracy. And, and he's talking about it explicitly. I, I think the part that's baffling to us or to me at least is that it feels like people are just ignoring this. Like the, like how do they not see it? And, and I think it's not that I think, that for a lot of voters, that's the appeal, right? Like that's not a flaw, that's a feature. And, and yeah. I, you know, when you, when you look at people who, again, are af afraid about societal change or losing power or what that might be, what that might look like if, if you know, white people and men are no longer in power, conservative, you know, Christians are no longer in power, then the idea of a, a strong man, someone who's willing to come in and do the, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do the hard thing, even if it's, you know, even if it's ugly, right? Like I'm going to use power to enforce my will. That's not a, that's not a scary thing. That's a reassuring thing. And so I think that's where yeah. th that sort of talk actually like appeals to a huge chunk of American voters. Especially if that messaging is I'm going to protect you and your way of life. Right. I mean, that's 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 part of the message where and we've seen voters are willing to give up on democracy if their their political ends are are pursued. Right. So Trump says to them, hey, I'm going to pull democracy away, but I'm going to protect your religious rights and I'm going to protect Christianity. And I'm going to you know, he does these things. And, and what happens is his supporters say, like. I don't really care much. I don't care that much about democracy, right? I'd rather have the things that I want. And I have, if I have to pursue them through an anti-democratic president, I will do that because that's the most important thing. Like preserving our way of life is more important than preserving the democratic process. It's, it's terrifying. I don't, I mean, it, it is one of those things that as a political scientist, it is both fascinating and I, and I understand it in that I understand yeah. how this happens, but I don't understand it in that I, you know, it's like, a, there's so much evidence about out there about how much more effective democracy is and why, yeah. you know, this authoritarian shift is bad. And, uh, and it's, I don't know, it's like people just playing with fire. I, now, yeah. go, go ahead. What were you, you, were you well, I was just going to say, you know, if the American democracy collapses 50 years from now, 100 years from now, it's not going to be a surprise, right? Scholars like you and I will look through the books and be like, look what he said. He said he was going to do the thing he did. <laughs> right. And the people, there was a Washington Post article about that he was going to do all these anti-democratic things. Why didn't people and listen to that? And people went out and said, that's what we want, right? I mean, this is right. that's what's that's happening, right. right? He's saying, I'm going to be a, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to tear apart democracy. I'm going to refuse to lose. And people are saying, that's what I want. I, I mean, that's where we are at this point, right? It's not that people are confused or duped. It is out in the open what he what he will be, and that's what people are saying they they would choose. So I, yeah, having having yeah. said all of that, let's go back to these polling numbers because sure. the other part of it is like how worried should we be? And I'm not. I mean, I, I think the stakes are so high that like we should be worried, and alarm bells should be going off that this is even a possibility. But at the same time. Uh, those polling numbers don't send me into a panic yet, and and I and I think. I don't know. I mean, this is you were saying some of this, but I, I think it's the it's the same thing. It's that we have a year to go. There, there's going to be trials. Like, I don't think people are thinking about it all that much. The, to the extent that people are thinking about it, they're thinking about their frustration with Biden, 
and yep. they're going to see a lot of Donald Trump. There's going to be, I, it's just hard for me to imagine. I, I think what's happening right now is there's a whole lot of people who are, you know, this is sort of a protest thing or, or people who aren't willing to say they support Biden that when push comes to shove, it's hard to me, for me to imagine that Trump has picked up supporters in the last two years, right? Like if, if you weren't on board with him last time around, it's hard to imagine that you are this time. And so um, to me, that's where I think, you know, when it comes down to actual polling another year of more seeing Trump and his like, again, the stuff he's saying if you haven't been paying attention to it is like further out there than it's ever been. Like he's out there claiming now that he won all 50 States in the last election. Like you, he's going to end up getting convicted on, on, on some of these uh, charges. And, and so that doesn't mean that he won't win, but I I don't think we should put a whole lot of stock into the polling a year out. And and there's, there's, it's not just Trump. I mean, this was like Obama was down a year out. Um, there's, there's a long history of this. And so I, I just think that, um, it, it, we should be alarmed, but I don't, yeah. I don't think it's time to hit the panic button at this point. No, I, th- I, th- I tend to agree with you. And, and, and for some of those reasons, I also think that some of this is a metric of, as you said, frustration with Biden, uh, frustration on, on, on student loan things that he tried to do that, that weren't accomplished, you know, frustration where, well, there are more jobs out there, but they're not necessarily great jobs. So if you're young, you're still frustrated. You know, there's a lot of reasons, you know, I, I think the, the, the Israel policy has proven to be more political contentious that I think he anticipated, you know, when Biden went to Israel and and tied himself so closely to Israel and Netanyahu. And I think he's realizing that's more of a divisive issue than they anticipated. So I think that so, you know, and and six months from now, those things may be different because the the campaign will be more in front of our face. Ads are out there. You know, I mean, all of those things are going to change it. So I don't think there's I don't think there's reason to panic about this. I'm guessing it's it's picking up on something slightly different, but I still I still I still this should not even be close. No. This should be a landslide For the sure. other way. And, yes. and uh, that that is a little disheartening. So but yeah. well, should we transition to our next topic? Yeah. All right. So so for our next topic, we're going to think about the the intersection of religion and politics in the current Republican Party. And there have been some developments in the last couple of weeks that provide an opportunity to assess the nature of that relationship. Uh, Most notably, the election of Mike Johnson, a speaker of the House. Uh, Johnson has been open about his beliefs, noting last week when he was talking with Sean Hannity that if you want to know his position on any issue, quote, go pick up a Bible off your shelf and read it. That's my worldview, unquote. Uh, Johnson fits squarely with a new cohort of conservative Christianity that is often described as Christian nationalism. Although I don't know I've heard Johnson himself describe himself as a Christian nationalist. But So whether or not he embraces that term, he clearly believes that Christianity should play a more prominent role in government. In the past, we've talked about how Christian nationalists reject the idea that the founders uh, believed in the separation of church and state. Instead, they believe the country was founded as a Christian nation and the Constitution is a reflection of God's law. In other words, the church is supposed to be driving law and public policy. Uh, Our listeners will no doubt have heard Johnson's anti-LGBTQ views. Uh, He once called homosexuality an inherently unnatural and dangerous lifestyle that would lead to legalized pedophilia and possibly even destroy the entire democratic system. Um, In fact, he has written that, quote, homosexual marriage is the dark harbinger of chaos and sexual anarchy that could doom even the strongest republics, unquote. 
sexual anarchy, Phil. Um, so so we, should, we should talk about that. Um, also in the religion and politics news was an article in the Washington Post exploring the unique ways in which former President Trump has been portraying himself as a Jesus-like martyr. Uh, you might have seen some images floating around the internet of Trump and Jesus. Uh, Trump himself has recently shared a bizarre court st- sketch of himself sitting next to Jesus at his New York fraud trial. It's it's really, it's out there. Um, and Trump has leaned heavily into portraying himself as a martyr for his supporters, often saying, they're not after me, they're after you. I'm just standing in the way. So, Phil, you're an expert in religion and politics, and this is a lot of religion and politics. So so do you want to start with Trump as Jesus or Mike Johnson and sexual anarchy? Uh, so I think we should start with Mike Johnson. Um, yeah. And then because I think he explains Trump as Jesus to some extent. So so, I mean, I think this is this is, you know, this is an element that has been at play in American politics. I was going to say for a long time, I think for less time than people realize, like yeah. the way people talk about the role of religion in, you know, in American politics and this idea that we were founded as a Christian nation and the, you know, separation of church and state was not really meant to be separation of church and state. Um, those are, those are fairly recent arguments like that. That's really been kind of the last 40 years of American politics. There's been this attempt really since kind of the seventies, but really the eighties, um, to, to sort of insert Christianity into politics and for Christians to sort of claim a bigger role in the political process. And so, um, this is not as, as like, you know, a longstanding, um, as, as people, uh, might imagine, but, um, I, I think to, or to understand this, there's also, it's also important to tie it back to what we were just talking about with this previous topic, which is this idea of, you know, you know, white Christians being sort of the center of American society for so long. And that is like, that's like the, the numbers of like, when you look at the numbers in terms of like religious makeup in America, um, Christianity is sort of a shrinking number. Um, the number of people who are sort of, you know, not any religion or of some other religion is growing. We are, you know, an increasingly multicultural society. And I think you're seeing, um, increased backlash to that. And, and it has played out. I mean, I've, you know, this is the, these are the circles that I kind of grew up in. Um, you know, I, I grew up in, in churches and in, uh, you know, other political groups where this was kind of the, the discussion. I remember, you know, getting, reading books when I was young about, you know, how you know, making arguments about how the founders meant the country to be religious and, and, and all of this. But, um, it is, it, this is that, you know, when we talk about, uh, in, in over the past few years, we've talked a lot about sort of white Christian nationalism and they get lumped together. But I think it's important to realize they're really kind of two different things. Um, they complement each other really nicely. And so I think there are a lot of Trump supporters who are more sort of white nationalists who are more concerned yeah. about, you know, ethnic diversity. And then there are the Christian nationalists who are worried about like the fading power of, of Christianity. But for someone like Mike Johnson, who is like, I think this really is Christian nationalism. It is the idea that what it means to be like, when we talk about religious nationalism, we're talking about what it means. Nationalism is a question about who belongs and, and the Christian nationalism says who belongs are Christians, right? Like this is, we are a nation of Christians and non-Christians are, are sort of outsiders, right? They don't, they don't sort of belong in the same way. And the way Mike Johnson talks about it is, is like almost 
borderline theocracy, right? I mean, when you talk about theocracy, it is the idea that that the laws of the land should be religious laws. Um, and and it, he talks about it in a way that's it's it's different from like my religious beliefs influence my views. It's that my religious beliefs should be the law of the land, and and that is yeah. that's um it's it's a it's a curious thing, um and and what you see happening is people who are still like really all, having said all of that, Christianity is still the, the, you know, major, it's like the largest religion. Sure. It's the religion of you know, all of our national holidays and all this other stuff. But what you see is like this increasing sense of persecution, right? Christians who yeah. in, Victims. in this interview, yeah. this link that I put that, that about him up, I mean, he talks a lot about like, he's done lots of legal work defending Christian views and people have asked him, why don't you defend other religions? And he says, because the other religions aren't under attack, right? Like it is, yeah. this belief that Christianity is in fact the one being persecuted, not in a position of power, but is in fact being persecuted. And that's a remarkable viewpoint to have in a country where like Christianity is so obviously kind of the dominant, um, a cultural yeah. sort of uh, touchstone. I, I I, I I don't know. I mean, I, that contributes to the, some of these kind of crazy ideas about sexual anarchy. But I, what, you, what, you were, were you going to say something? Go ahead. Well, I was just just to add to that. So as you were talking, I was I, I had seen some data recently, and I used I talk about it in my comparative politics class. So I was looking it up, and it's 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 tracking the percentage of the American public that identifies as white and Christian. So in 1976, 80 percent of the public uh, the population identified as white and Christian. 80 percent. Uh, by 1996, it was down to 65%. Uh, and then now it's at 42 or yeah. 43%. So, I mean, this is now you're, you're absolutely right to say the white, that's still the largest percentage of any yep. um, religious group in the United States. So, so white Christians are still the biggest group. There's, you know, Jews, nobody else is even close to that, uh, Muslims. But you're going from 80%. Of identification of the country down to 42%, you feel like you're slipping, right? This, this yeah. goes back to what you were saying in that first topic. So if you are a white Christian, it feels like you're losing your voice. It feels like you're losing your power. It feels like you're being persecuted. Even though you still are the biggest group out there, you no longer have control over the political discourse, right? If, if 80% of the country is white and Christian, you control the political system, you control the economic system, the court system, that is always going to reflect your values. That's no longer the case. And so, right, to your point, part of Trump, part of Mike Johnson, all of why this is happening is it's 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 a result of feeling that you are being persecuted, even though like, you know, you're still hey, you're still you're still number one. Uh, they're just other other groups out there. Right? It's it's fascinating. Again, to, to another point, good point you made is that uh, it's 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 interesting to understand that dynamic, but it's also troubling to sort of understand what's really driving all of that. Yeah, well, and it, and it is like you said, when when you've been in a position where like your views have been the dominant views, like the yeah. the world we're living in now, which is you know one in which lots of other people are saying, hey, we have views too, and we'd like to have them sort of recognized. <laughs> right. Yes, it, that's not persecution, right? The idea that like everyone you know 
like just because everyone doesn't agree with me doesn't mean that I'm being persecuted and that other people, yeah. you know, want to have their views uh, taken into account as well. But I think for for people like Mike Johnson, it feels like that, like you were saying, right? Yeah. It's like it, it used to be that everyone agreed with me and suddenly all these people who don't. And, and this is the other part about religion. And, and this is where it comes up when you look at religious nationalism around the world is when you mix religion into things. You're not talking like when you talk about politics, there are there is this idea that, you know, we have differing ideas of policy. So you think taxes should be higher. I think they should be lower. There's different ideas about why this works. We can debate it. We can look at evidence when you mix religion in. It's not open to debate. Right. So when, especially yeah. when you get into sort of fundamentalist type of, you know, um, religious attitudes, it is it is I I am. Right. Right. Like this comes from, like he says, the, the Bible is, you know, in his view, the Bible is, um, you know, un, it, it is perfect. Right. It is unerring. And so um, it, it, there's not it's not like, hey, I'm willing to have a discussion about gay rights and, and gay marriage. It is. I, I know this is right. Like this is what yeah. the Bible tells me and the Bible is correct. And so I'm right and you are wrong. And so in that sense, it's it's not just that I'm making room for other views. It's that the right view is being sort of pushed out by the wrong view. And so that contributes to this, again, sense of persecution, I think, or the sense of the stakes are so high. And, and, and all of that is what contributes to, again, all the things we talked about, the willingness to, I mean, Mike Johnson was one of the kind of, you know, biggest supporters of the, of yeah. the, the 2020, you know, election, um, you know, Trump didn't actually lose movement. And, and I think it, it's understandable when you understand that this is his worldview to some extent. Well, and this is, this is sort of fascinating because it also gets to this question about, is it more about religion or is it more about politics? And so this group, right, so the the far, the religious right, um, I don't think they're necessarily more religious. I think they're more political. Mm -hmm. And to, to what you noted, like it's a mix of this religion and politics, right? Because the religious right has always been religious. It hasn't always been political. And then what we've seen more recently is that religion is now being, is, is becoming a political force. And certainly there are elements within that far right that are more religious and there are elements that are more political. But I, I tend to think this is more about politics than it is about religion. Um and I think because there are certain inconsistencies to the position, right? I mean, think, you know, Mike Johnson's view on immigration. I mean, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on on how Christianity understands immigration, but I don't think it, it, it would be about building a wall and keeping people out, right? So you <laughs> right. find ways to use your religion to justify your political views, right? And so, so yes. this movement, this sort of Christian nationalist feels more political than it is religious, even though, as you said, it is all it is using the frame of religion to say, I can't compromise on this because it's my faith. It's yep. a I don't know. It's an interesting distinction to me. You're I think you're right. And I think you're 100 percent right. I mean, I you know, when when I don't know if you do this, when I teach my comparative politics class, we always begin with a discussion of what is politics and politics yeah. is power, right? It's about who has power, who has the right or the power to make decisions for other people, right? And in a democracy, we say the people have that power, they vote and they get to set rules and all of that. Um, and, and that's what, in this case, that's what it is. It's about who has the power to sort of set the rules. And and to go back to what you were saying, like when, when Mike Johnson says, pick up a Bible, um, and that's my worldview, that is such a simple like statement. Uh, and, yeah. and 
it's not like the Bible says, goes through and says, one, you know, this should be the law to this. I mean, it is like there's it is a deeply, you know, contradictory, confusing book as well. And like you said, like you can draw all sorts of conclusions. And so there is this assumption being made, but the assumption is like the Bible, my interpretation of the Bible is also the right interpretation and I'm going to impose it on you as well. And so um, it, it really gets back to this, again, notion of, I know what's right and I will therefore, you know, impose it on you, um, which is, again, a, a fundamentally anti-democratic uh, notion in, in this whole process. It, 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 you, you talked about it as who has power. And I think that's so, so telling. Right. And as we've seen this demographic demographic shift in the country where uh, a smaller percentage of the country is identifying as white and Christian. Right. It feels like you're losing that power. And so this isn't necessarily about the religion. It's about that political power. And it's about one's whiteness. It's about one's Christianity. It's about seeing a world that is more diverse, uh, where minorities are suddenly uh, expressing their views and, and LGBTQ groups. Groups are saying this is what we believe. And so those narratives are challenging the dominance of that one white Christian perspective. And that threat to your political power is 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 terrifying. Right. So, again, all of this makes sense, but it doesn't make it right. You right, know? right. <laughs> it all bodes you know, badly for the dem- democracy. The other thread of this that I think gets weaved in and, and you and I, I feel like we've talked about this on the podcast, but we've talked about it off the podcast that, you know, I grew up in a, in a, you know, Southern Baptist, very, you know, conservative, um, uh, church, uh, and, um, the, the sort of, you know, evangelical Christianity is very much this faith-based approach, right. In that, like, the I, Christianity itself, the long, you know, 2000 year history of Christianity is really one of like wrestling with and challenging and, and, you know, you know, I don't challenging church doctrine and wrestling with the ideas. And the evangelical movement is not really that right. It is that the, what makes you a good Christian is like, you know, walking on faith, right? Like I will, I will believe it and I will not challenge it. And that, that element has been weaved into our politics. And so you think about like, I don't know the, the, the question of, you know, when we think about how do evangelical Christians support Donald Trump, it, it is again, if, if it is framed as good versus evil, and this is the guy who's on my side, then I, I'm not going to look at facts. I'm not going to like analyze it. I'm not going to wrestle with it. I have to, you know, believe that this is, you know, I hear when I hear people talk about it, they talk about how, you know, Trump is God's chosen person or whatever that is faith-based politics playing out, you know, faith-based, uh, you know, uh, beliefs playing out in politics. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, it all, it all kind of adds to this as well. Well, and it con- connects to the anti-democratic elements we were talking about on the first topic, right? Where you're willing to embrace a flawed figure if he's going to protect your worldview. Yep. Wait, so let, let's, t- that takes us to, so I said we would start with Mike Johnson and then talk about how that explains Trump, right? So yes, I, I mean, right. I think to come back to jump Trump as a, uh, as a Jesus figure, right? This is where, if you take all this stuff we've talked about, this sense of Christianity is right and evil, you know, all of these, you know, anti, uh, everyone who, who doesn't believe the same way as me is actually gaining power in society. Then it is like a good versus evil and good is losing. Um, and, and it is back to this idea of persecution, right? Like this sense of persecution and we're being targeted and all of that. Um, and this idea of, I'm not going to actually dig into the, the facts of it. And you arrive at a point where Donald Trump can be a Jesus figure in that 
anyone who is targeting him, right? It must be, you know, if he's, if he's our side, if he's on the side of, you know, Christians and, and abortion, you know, uh, pro-life and all of that other stuff, then anyone targeting him is in fact, you know, this is, he is a figure of persecution, right? He is, he, and, and this, you, you sent me a really good article that I've posted about how, you know, he, he frames it as, it, it, that he's sort of standing in the way, right? That he he represents both a willingness to use power to infor, to impose the you know the right solution, and he's willing to you know the, to make him a Jesus figure. He's willing to suffer on our behalf, right? So he's going. Right. He even talks about it like I, they're targeting me because I'm standing in the way of you. So he becomes sort of this stand-in for people. And, and, and that is like weirdly, you know, like sort of Jesus like, right? Like he's taking yes. on the sins of, of the, of the people, um, his supporters. And so it's, it's a, it is, it is bizarre to see a man who is on his, you know, third marriage and has had paid off porn stars and, you know, lies under oath and incites insurrections and whatever be sort of elevated as this like Jesus like figure. But, um, I mean, in, in this bizarre, our way, it kind of makes sense at the same time. Well, and it helps us understand why the Republican Party can't move on from Trump, because he is is sort of a unique voice and martyr for that movement. And so Ron DeSantis can embrace Trumpism and the MAGA movement even to a greater level than Trump, but it doesn't matter because he's not Trump, right? There's, it's, again, uh, Trump is somewhat diabolical in terms of how he's gone about this. Like, this is about him. It's about his unique role and the sort of cult of personality that he has created. And it means the party can't move on as long as he's there or, or as long as he doesn't want the party to move on to somebody else. So it means that you continue, despite electoral losses, you have to continue to embrace that figure because of what he represents to that, that movement. Uh, yeah, again, fascinating, but also like really, really bizarre in terms of its implications. To, I know we need to move on to our last topic, but to tie it again back once more to to the talk to, that Daniel Ziblatt gave on campus last week, he he talks about how the sort of anti-democratic populist, you know, whatever right wing groups are, you know, they make up kind of 20 to 30 percent of populations across democracies, right? Like you're seeing this in Europe and other things. What makes it different is that the United in, in other countries, um, it is hard for a sort of 30 percent political minority to to gain power. And in the United States, we have a political system, the the Senate, the Electoral College, the way we divide things up that that sort of uh, disproportionately favors rural uh, America over urban mm -hmm. America, um, the filibuster, all these other institutions that are in place that allow, again, so you were talking about white Christians are down to 40% of, of the population, but 40% of the population can hold on to power um, and use that power to sort of, you know, stop the the um, erosion of their position in society. So it, it is this sort of culmination of all these societal changes with the the specific institutions, the electoral systems, the sort of disproportionate, you know, nature of of the Senate, gerrymandering, the filibuster, the Supreme Court, yeah. all of this stuff combined is what allows this sort of increasingly small or increasingly small, but an increasingly scared portion of society to to kind of pull the lever still. To be behind the vice president in terms of the the next one to be president of the United States, yep. right? Second in line. It's, yep. uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, oh, we we could go on, but let's let's uh, transition and spend a little bit of time on our our final topic. So, 
Uh, on Tuesday, the Supreme Court heard a case about addressing the constitutionality of a federal law that makes it a crime for people under domestic violence restraining orders to possess a gun. But more simply, it addresses the question of whether the government has the right to take away guns from domestic abusers. Uh, this comes in the wake of last year's blockbuster decision of New York versus Bruin that vastly expanded gun rights. In that 6-3 to three decision, the court struck down a New York gun law and established a new legal standard for other gun regulation laws. This new standard requires that any gun law has to have be analogous to a law that existed at the <laughs> nation's founding in the late 1700s. So the courts are to look to historical practices and the intent of the founding fathers who crafted the Second Amendment when determining the constitutionality of a gun law. So in that majority opinion, Justice Thomas wrote that, quote, the government must demonstrate that the regulation is consistent with this nation's historical tradition of firearm regulation, unquote. So this current case is a serious test to that new standard. So let me let me let me tell you a little bit about this case. The defendant in the case uh, heard yesterday, Zaki Rahimi, is a poster child for why you don't want domestic abusers to have access to guns. Here's a little background. In 2019, he assaulted his girlfriend in a parking lot. And after realizing that a bystander saw the assault, he fired a gun at the witness and threatened to shoot his girlfriend if she told anyone. Two months later, a Texas court granted her a protective order, suspended Rahimi's gun license, and warned him that possession of a gun while the order remained in effect is a federal felony. Rahimi repeatedly violated that court order, threatened another woman with a gun, and fired a gun in five different locations in a period of one month. Incidents that ranged from shooting a gun repeatedly at another driver after a collision to firing multiple shots in the air at a fast food restaurant after that restaurant declined his friend's credit card. Well, this is crazy, Phil. All right, so the court finds itself in this position where it either needs to allow a domestic abuser to have their gun rights or find an analogous law in the 1700s that said it's okay to take away guns from people. Phil, what do you make of this little pickle the originalists are finding themselves in? I mean, I think this is fascinating. This is a really interesting case study in the dilemma that I think conservative, you know, America finds it's, you know, is facing. Yeah. And that is, we've talked about before, the Republican Party has become really effective at um, being the party out of power, being, you know, being critical, throwing, you know, lobbing grenades at the, at the Democrats as they try to do things. But they've based so much of their political movement on that, on sort of grievance and crit criticism that they are sort of wholly unprepared for actually governing. And, and we saw this when, you know, Donald Trump was elected and the Republicans controlled the House, the Senate and the presidency. And other than tax cuts could achieve and, and putting Supreme Court justices in place couldn't achieve anything because they, they don't really have a plan other than like we we don't like the Democrats. And so um, this is an example of where, you know, this is the whatever the cat or the dog finally catching its tail in so many ways. Yeah. And this is, you know, the 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 the. They, they were finally able to, you know, uh, uh, undo Roe v. Wade. And we're seeing the political ramifications of that across the country and, and state after state as people uh, sort of push back. But this is an example as well where it feels like they finally had their chance to, you know, full on basically say yeah. the Second Amendment, you know, reigns supreme. Originalism is like this great, again, critique of that's not what the fathers, uh, founding fathers had to say. But when it comes time to actually govern on that, you realize there's no substance to it. It's like pointing to the yeah. Bible in that it's not right. clear. Like what did the founders think 
um, is, is one, it's not particularly, it's not so abundantly clear. And, and two, it's often contradictory. And three, it typically doesn't line up with sort of the myths that conservative America has, has been telling. And so this is an example where they, they finally got what they wanted. And now it's like, well, well, shit, what do we, how are we like, you know, now are we going to actually say that this person who is an obvious threat still has a second uh, amendment right to own guns? And, and to watch them, you know, read the as you read through the sort of discussion and the the, the it, it sounds like the court is going to uphold this law that says yes. that that um, I mean we won't know for for a number of more months, but it sounds like they are likely to uphold this law saying that the government can take away guns from domestic abusers, but trying to figure out a way to get there through the logic of the test that they established is like clearly like they you know, it's, it's again, governing is hard. So it's like you, you, the reality is that you can't really have a country in which like there is a perfect, everybody gets to have a gun. Like, and and so how do you navigate those nuances and, and watching them sort of try to desperately find historical analogies for this is really fascinating. And, and I think that's the part that's also kind of reveals the emptiness of originalism is that, this idea that uh, that you have to have a historical analogy one is crazy right like that it's yeah. the idea that like i mean the the sort of logical extent of this is that all laws should have to be like you know they would have been understandable yeah. 200 years ago and the nature of laws is that they change right we change laws and and the yeah. government should be able to change laws and i realize this is a constitutional question but Um, it's also where like this is a constitutional question that if we really, if conservatives really cared about historical precedent, um, the, the current understanding of the second amendment does not line up at all with historical precedent. Like this is a, you know, a, what a 20 year old, uh, understanding that the second amendment gives an individual a right to own guns through most of history. It was this understanding that militias and states had a right to own guns, not individuals. And so it's, it's again, this thing where they like pick and choose when they want to, to use these things. But now that they are in the power of like having to actually interpret and create law, it's, it's like, you realize, you realize that it's, 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 you know, it's, it's all made of sand. It's, it's kind of crumbling quickly. And, and if you follow the real preaching of originalism, it forces you to take a position that you don't want to, right? Yeah. I and mean, if they if they were to legitimately interpret this through an originalist lens, I think you're forced to say, if we go back to the 17, late 1700s, nobody cared about domestic abuse. That was not an issue. There were no laws, you know, pr- protecting uh, domestic abusers from, from having access to firearms. You're not going to find it. So what you'll find is you'll, you'll try to tweak it to say, well, uh, the government believed you could take weapons away from dangerous persons, right? So they will they will tweak it, and I think you're right. It shows the hollow and hollowness of originalism, and we've we've talked about that before. But originalism is a relatively new development, or right? it goes back to Bork and you know the, that whole era. So it's only been around a couple decades, and there's it's a real brilliant strategy for conservatives because they don't like new progressive laws. So what you say is, if it's not in the original constitution, it's not a right. So therefore, no right to abortion, no right to LGBTQ rights, no right race, you know, nothing along those racial lines, right? Because it says, let's go back to that original constitution, which doesn't mention all these more modern laws that we think are important to represent groups who've been neglected. But 
Then you get moments like this where if you really authentically and genuinely interpret the original interpretation of this, it means you got to give the domestic abusers their guns back, right? And so they they won't do that because it'll make originalism seem absolutely absurd. Right. Uh, so they will find a way to tweak and manipulate their constitutional interpretation to say that, no, it's we, it's all right to take these guns away. And it's it feels totally disingenuous to me. Uh, and it shows the sort of, like you said, the the hollowness, the 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 problem of saying that we're all originalist yeah well and the, i mean the the ultimate you know uh i don't know i irony of the whole thing is that originalism itself doesn't hold up to originalist right, right, you know it, right. like the the founders themselves didn't believe in an in originalism they thought it was a live uh, you know a living you know evolving document as well yeah. Um, they had no I, no notion that it was going to be sort of cemented in stone at that moment forever. Um, and again, this is also a notion that doesn't exist in other places. I mean, if you look around the world, that's the other thing that, you know, Ziblatt talked about is that the, this sort of uh, constitution has been in place in uh, all sorts of countries around the world. And the United States is the only one left that has like refused to evolve on certain core issues. Um, and so, yeah, it, it is, uh, it's, it's kind of a, a, it's, it's a crazy notion that, that again, doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't hold up. And I, I you know, watching the, the justices sort of, I mean, what, what's fascinating is that there are a couple, um, so Thomas and, uh, um, uh, I always, <laughs> I always get Alito and Scalia mixed up, oh, yes, um, <laughs> but they were, um, uh, they're like all on there. It seems like they're still they're They're on board with like, yeah, the second yeah. amendment, like you can abuse and murder whoever you want and you still get, have a right to own guns. They're like right. all in. That's kind of crazy. Um, yeah. but yeah, the, the others, the, the sort of more moderate conservatives find themselves in this place where you could, you, you again could feel them trying to like looking for a lifeline, a way that they could sort of yeah. structure a test, um, uh, that would allow something like this to, 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 you know, play out. But again, like, yeah. I, you know, this is where you start asking those questions again about like, wh like why does originalism allow you to take away guns in this instance, but, you know, the New York law last year, which says that, you know, the government, the government doesn't have a right to tell you that you can't carry your guns around, you know, publicly, you know, again, they're just, they're, they're, they have a, a notion of where they want to go with the ruling and they're finding a way to get them there. It's not actually that originalism is leading them to the conclusion. If originalism is, were leading you to the conclusion, you would go all the way, like you're saying to this notion yeah. that no, we can't do this. There's no, there's no precedent for this. And so you get to, even if you're a terrible person, you get to keep your guns. <laughs> But the, the appeal of originalism is that, like, we go back to the document, right? And if it's not in the document, we're not doing that. And it simplifies things. It's not political opinion. We're simply umpires calling balls and strikes. But the reality is what we're seeing here, this isn't balls and strikes. This is uh, constitutional gymnastics to get a, a particular position in. And, I think you know, I think they're going to make the right decision. I don't think, you know, domestic abusers should have access to guns. The data is overwhelming, right, that this is a bad precedent. Uh, and that a law, the Congress should have the ability to pass a law along these lines. Uh, but yeah, they're they're going to be forced to tweak, and it's it's going to be awkward. But like you said, Thomas and Alito are going to plunge ahead and say this is where the court <laughs> is going, um, and it's going to force 
multiple, I think there are going to be more cases like this where it's, it's the absurdity is going to be exposed and they're going to have to find ways of creating a living constitution, even though they argue it's, it's an original constitution. So do you think, does this begin the, like, does the, the sort of full on capture of government institutions by sort of originalists by the, you know, courts and, and, you know, the Republican party and whatnot. And the awareness like of like, well, now we have to do this. Does this begin sort of a pendulum swing back in the other direction? Like do even the hardcore people, the, you know, the Kavanaugh's and the Amy Coney Barrett's of the world say, okay, like this is, you're shaking your head. You don't believe it. (laughs) Does does it believe, does it begin the pendulum swing and not amongst them, but amongst the sort of, you know, next generation of conservatives that come along who are like, look, this is that, that's absurd. We're going to make an argument based on small government. And it's a political argument, not this originalist, uh, you know, sort of philosophical faith-based approach. That could occur, right? I think I think if we've learned anything from this episode is cognitive dissonance is powerful, yeah. right? And so the yeah. court will continue to argue that what they're doing is originalism, and they will probably authentically believe that. Um, but you're right. There may be future, not just conservatives, but voters in general. Uh, there may be a shift. I think you're going to have to have a different court makeup to move beyond this. I think we're, we're going to be stuck with originalism for for a long time. Uh, it's just those, those, the, those views are entrenched, um, and it's going to be hard to move them. Well, at least we have, you know, uh, limited terms for our Supreme Court justices like all the other countries. So there's a there's a limited time this impact can play out. This is exactly right. All right. Well, that is a perfect moment for wrapping up. Phil, remind everybody we had some some really, really interesting pieces to, to discuss today. Uh, tell them how they can get to the website and, and find all those those great readings. Yeah. So the politics you go there, click on this week's episode. And, and again, the article on Mike Johnson and his views, the article on Trump as, as Jesus, the, the article on this Supreme Court case, um, uh, you know, all of that, the polling data from New York Times is all linked on, on that webpage, and you can find it all, including email and social media and all that other stuff at, at thepoliticslab.com. That is fantastic. All right, Phil, I will see you next week. Bye, Bill. Bye, Phil. <laughs>